In a book on Abraham's life, Jack Kohatschek wrote, Patience is a virtue we spend our whole lives trying to truly learn. And then he quoted uh, the book, Zorba the Greek, the novel, illustrating the scene that showed the danger of what happens when impatience tries to help matters along. I remembered one morning when I discovered a cocoon on the bark of a tree. Just as the butterfly was making a hole in its case, preparing to come out, I waited a while, but it was too long in peering and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could and the miracle began to happen before my eyes. Faster than life. The case opened and the butterfly started slowly crawling out. And I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Bending over it, I tried to help it with my breath in vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently and the unfolding of the wings to be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear, all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately, and a few seconds later, died in the palm of my hand. I realize today that we should not hurry. We should not be impatient. But we should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. Today we're going to look at an incident out of the lives of Abram and Sarah when they fell victim to impatience. A time that they were trying to help the Lord. The scripture we'll be reading is Genesis 6, 1-6 through and I would ask you to stand as we hear the word of the Lord together. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. She can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai took his wife, his wife took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar. and She conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Sarah offered Abram a bad solution to their childless problem. Sarai was trying to help the Lord. 
we need to learn from them today. Desperately. We must be careful not to get ahead of God. The songs we sung about trusting and having faith when we can't see are just as valid and important today as they were for Sarai and Abram. But what happens when we don't learn the lesson? What happens when we try to help God to fix our lives? Well, some dramatic results can happen, and we're going to take a look at them. To begin with, we understand that refusing to wait on the Lord can result in faithless solutions to our problems. Even people who have a strong faith, when they decide, I know what I need to do to make this right, rather than chasing God's will, very often what we do is faithless. Sarai's solution to the problem was based upon worldly wisdom and not faith. Now, it's not really hard to understand how she came to her conclusion. She was, after all, way past childbearing years. They'd been in Canaan 10 years, and it may have been 15 years before that that they left Ur. So she's clearly past childbearing years. And then, in everything that God has said so far, He has not specifically said that Sarah would give birth to Abram's son of promise. So, Sarai turned to a common practice of the cultures in which she and Abram had lived. In the legal custom of the, the Mediterranean world at that time, the Fertile Crescent, a barren woman could actually give a maid, her maid, her servant, to her husband as a wife. And the child born of that union would then be regarded as the wife's child. The moment the husband said to the slave's wife's son, you are my son, that son became the legal heir of the father and the first wife. So Sarai's suggestion, which seems so crazy to us, was completely unobjectable according to the customs of that time. And folks, even to this day, we have a similar situation. It's not quite acted out the same way, but surrogate mothers are not that uncommon in our world. So the world would say, this is a good idea. This is what you should do. But Sarai and Abram forgot one key truth facing them, one truth that makes a difference for us as well. It's all Alan Ross has noted when we're looking at what culture says, God often repudiates social customs. There are a lot of things that are happening in our world right now that go contrary to the will of God and the purpose of God. And to kind of cement this and help us understand, throughout the centuries, both ancient and modern scholars of the Word have noticed there is a real similarity, and probably done intentionally, 
between the stories found in Genesis 3 and Genesis 16. If you'll remember, the, the entrance of sin into this world happened when Eve listened to the serpent who said, if you eat of that fruit, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And Eve looked at the fruit and saw, this will make me wise. So she took it. And she took a bite. And then she gave it to her husband, Adam, and said, here, you bite it too. And he took the fruit. And we're told in Genesis 3-7, when God is telling Adam why he's going to suffer consequences, you listened to your wife. The word listen there can be translated, you obeyed your wife, you did what she wanted. And you took the bite. Now, fast forward centuries. And Sarai looks, she desires a son. It's not wisdom she has. She wants a son that she can call her own. So she takes her maidservant, according to the customs of the day, gives her to her husband, who then takes her as wife. And we're told that Abram heard his wife. It's the same word to listen that was used in Genesis 3. He obeyed her, took Hagar, made her his wife, and she conceived a child. He agreed to. He listened to. He obeyed. The world would have said, this is fine. This is good. It's a solution to your problem. God's not giving you a son, Sarai, but you can have a legal son. So do it. Folks, we need to understand, before we rake them over the coals, We need to understand it is too easy to fall into the sin of presumption that comes from our own wisdom. Sometimes situations happen where we look and we pray and we ask God, show us, and He doesn't answer within 24 hours, and so we start looking, how do we fix this? We often presume to have figured out what the Lord wants to do, and so we make a decision. Because after all, we've looked at it, haven't we? We've thought it through. We've looked at all the logical answers. We've looked at all the possibilities. And we've come to our own conclusion. This is what we should do. And what it results is often turning to the wisdom of the world. This is often what lies behind gimmicks that churches will use to try and bolster attendance. I was part, in the 70s, I was part of a change in youth work as a teenager. Some of you will remember a day and point in time when youth work started becoming more and more about entertainment. More and more about fun activities that would get kids into the church. And while Bible lessons might be taught, the real draw was volleyball or basketball or 
going to being, or on and on and on. And so a lot of teenagers flocked into churches. And then as quickly as they could get out of home, they went away. It's often what lies behind our individuals' ways of trying to find answers to our life. Back about 92, 93, Rachel, Jessica, and I were volunteers at a thing called the Friendship Center in Texarkana. It was a helping. We helped with groceries. We helped with uh, utilities. We helped with rent. We helped with clothing. We even had a, a feeding kitchen. And right about that time, Governor Ann Richards helped get the lottery passed in the state of Texas. And the idea was, we'll pass the lottery and we won't have the state income tax and we'll put all of the money in education so people love that idea and it passed and and they're waiting to get it moving. Well, that one particular day we were in in doing our shift, there was a woman in in the waiting room. She was there for every type of help we could offer. She was in a really bad circumstance, not through the fault of herself, there were a lot of things going on in her life. She needed every bit of help she could, and I overheard her telling her friend, as soon as the lottery's going to come, I'm going to buy a bunch of tickets, and I'm going to have it made. And in my brain, I'm thinking, you have nothing, and you're going to take what little you have to buy a chance at something you have a greater chance of being hit by lightning than winning. And you think it will solve your situation. Well, Paul warned and reminded the Corinthians, who were Greek in their heritage, he reminded them of a problem. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31, Paul wrote, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness Holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Folks, the world has a lot of ideas that we could mine to try to get people here. I shared a few weeks ago, if we made an announcement next week, the first hundred visitors to our church will each get a hundred dollar bill, we'd have a lot of people that Sunday. We can find gimmicks. But what we have to learn here, we must understand the need to trust God rather than pragmatism. I like that word pragmatism, not because of what it is, because it defines us very well. Pragmatism, folks, is defined as Merriam-Webster, a practical approach to problems and affairs. In other words, We are going to look at the problems and we are going to reason our way to the answer. And the answer basically is whatever works. So do whatever you need to do. If it works, it was the good decision. 
If it works, it was the right idea. And it is true, we can find ways to fix the problems facing the church today. To fix the problems in our lives. Ways that very well might work to accomplish what we understand needs to happen. But just because something works does not necessarily mean it's the intention of God. What do we need to do to touch this generation? Not in terms of just filling up a church, but touch lives. The Word of God is clear. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I quoted some time ago, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Paul is telling the Corinthians, this is what God is calling you to do. He's called me to this and he's calling you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What do we need to be doing? I'm not saying we don't plan. I'm not saying we don't try to think. But always looking what has God already told us to do. To live lives that will bring glory and honor to His name. And to do the ministry He has given us to do. To be sharing the truth of who Christ is. To be living the truth of what Christ can do in our lives. He has already given us the mandate. It was the mandate the church understood and committed to in the first century that ultimately led to the gospel being spread throughout the world. God is calling us to be the people of God. God is calling us to live. And we are not here as the church. Please hear me closely. Listen to me. I'm not saying do not be active in the world in which we live. Do not do your civic responsibilities. But as the church, we are not going to change the world through boycotts, political action committees, through worldly powers, through wisdom, of men that will tell us, you know what, if you just tempered your message a little bit, if you just changed the gospel a little bit and made it more appealing to people, then you could bring people in all the time. We are called, we are called to change the world 
through a lived gospel, through hearts that love the people Christ came to save, showing them way to God. And if we're not careful, seeking to find a way, what we may be offering the world is a faithless Christianity. A watered-down faith that means nothing. Which will give us our next result. Refusing to wait on the Lord can result in more problems to face. Once we've got it figured out and we choose to do what we want to do, we may, make it, we may be going from bad to worse. Look at what happened here. The solution that Sarai and Abram took brought jealousy and anger into their lives. Now the plan worked, and as far as Abram now has an heir, he took Hagar as his wife. He did have relations. She did become expectant. She did give birth to a son. But what price? Hagar became spiteful. The moment she becomes pregnant, the scripture says she despised her mistress. She's beginning to see that I am better than her. Because a general consensus was if you were barren, you were not a complete woman. The book of Proverbs actually centuries later would point out this problem. Proverbs 30, 20 through 23. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married and a maidservant who displaces her mistress. Hagar's wife, but she's wife number two. She will never be wife number one, but she's acting like it. And Sarai is not happy. She comes to Abram. It's your fault. I put my maidservant into your arms and look at the wrong she's doing. And boy, she is very sanctimonious. The Lord judged between you and me. I'm thinking about poor Abram. At some point, now he doesn't say it, maybe because discretion is the better point of valor, but he had to be thinking it was your idea. Arkin Hughes has pointed out, logically speaking, Soraya's accusation it's your fault isn't right because it was her fault. But he points out at another level, there was truth there. Abram was the patriarch. He was the head of the house. God had spoken to him, not to Sarai. And if Abram had been the man he was supposed to be, he would not have allowed the situation. Remember back in Genesis 3, when Eve eats of the fruit? The context understands that Adam is right there with her and does nothing to stop it. Abram does nothing to stop it. So at one level, he was responsible if he had been who he was supposed to be. Let's not be too easy on Hagar either. She is not the epitome of an innocent victim. 
she uses her pregnancy as an excuse to disdain her mistress. The point of this is, so much pain entered into this family because they could not wait upon the Lord. They would not wait upon the Lord. Richard Belcher says, trying to accomplish the promises of God through human means has disastrous consequences. In this case, the whole household loses. Sarai loses respect. Hagar loses a home. And Abram is caught in the middle of this quarrel between two women. Again, Donald Barnhouse once made this statement, no one has perfect feet on the road to faith. So before we are too hard on them, we need to understand terrible consequences follow when seeking solutions that will not honor God. Terrible consequences can come into our lives. The reality of facing trouble of our own making seems to be mark of the human condition. And I would like to say it's a mark of the lost human condition. But believers can find themselves in the same kind of situations. I was a pastor in the late 70s to to mid-90s when the Southern Baptist Convention went into a long period of fighting. It was over the Bible. It was over who would control the convention. There were two groups, the moderates and the conservatives. Only their names for each other were the liberals and the fundamentalists. And they were battling. One group said, this is holy war. They were using the language of jihad. The other group, on the other side of the aisle, it's time to go for the jugular. We can't be easy anymore. We've got to take them down. And I watched the Southern Baptist Convention, the convention I'm still part of, become derailed and lose sight. Some of you will remember that in the 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted bold mission thrust. It was an amazing idea, a challenge. The goal of this emphasis that the, would be the evangelizing of the entire world. Now, they're not saying every single person would hear, but every place people were, the gospel would be being preached. And the goal was to do it by the year 2000. The goals included entering 125 new countries, sending 5,000 missionaries, enlisting 12,000 churches to pray regularly for unreached people groups, sending 10,000 volunteers per year out on mission projects. It is now 2023. And Bold Mission Thrust did not accomplish its goals. I believe, and I will go to my grave believing, a large part of that was because of the infighting and the often ungodly attempts of people on both sides of the issue. I also believe that we as a convention have never completely recovered 
from that battle. Because ever since that battle, if you've been paying attention, we have continued to fight over different issues throughout the decades. Losing sight of our main purpose. I've watched people I have loved and served bring pain upon themselves when they've decided to go the way of the world for their solutions rather than trust in the Lord. Again, our Kent Hughes has pointed out in his own ministry what many pastors would say, I know, and I know this myself. Not a few times I've had believers in my office whose resort to expediencies in order to hurry what they have believed to be God's will has resulted in humanly unsolvable problems. In fact, some situations have become so complicated that there can be no solution in this life. There's grace, of course, but some sins are such that results cannot be taken back. And the pain goes on and on in this world. Believers, beware. And I've got to confess to you today, there have been times in my own life I've tried to help the Lord, much to my own chagrin. I've tried to fix things instead of waiting upon Him. Which is why God gave me Isaiah forty thirty one as my life verse. The need to learn to wait upon the Lord is a mighty need in my life. In the end, we must understand that trusting God can help us avoid needless pain. Learning to trust God and follow what He says we should be doing and live the lives He said we should be living can cause us to avoid needless pain. I, no, I did not say that it will cause us to alleviate all pain. You may remember in John 16, that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said, in this world, you will have trouble. There's no way to avoid it, folks. But the pain we bring into our lives can be avoided if we learn to trust in the One who not only said in John 16.33, you will have trouble in the world, but also said, take heart. I have overcome the world. If we will learn as individuals and if we will learn as this church and the church across America today to truly start seeking God's face like we haven't in a long time to pray for Him to move in our lives to open our hearts to show us the way we can avoid making a bad situation worse. And we can avoid the last result that we learn from Abram and Sarai. Refusing to wait on the Lord can result in ungodly actions. Not only ungodly plans, not only plans that will make things bad to worse, but we can actually move from just the idea to actually doing something that will dishonor God. When we look at Abram, What does he do here? Simply put, 
Abram capitulated to Sarai's anger rather than seeking God for an answer to their faithless solution. Sarai comes, it's your fault. And at that moment in time, he still had the chance to be the man he should have been. So while Sarai laid the blame on Abram, he had a chance to do the right thing. He should have affirmed Sarai. She's displacing me. She is doing wrong in my life. Abram could have said to Sarai, Hagar may have a child in the womb, but you will always and forever be my wife, my love. He could have done what Elkanah would do centuries later. The story is told in 1 Samuel. Elkanah had two wives. By the way, in the Bible, you will never find that sentence followed by, and it was great. People will point to the Bible and say, look, polygamy was there. It always caused grief. One of Elkanah's wives conceives a child. Hannah is unable to, and she is beside herself. She is in pain. And Elkanah tells his wife in 1 Samuel 1.8, one of the most beautiful statements a man has ever said to his wife. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I love you. And will always love you. He then could have been kind but firm with Hannah. He could have said to her, look, yes, you are bearing my my child. But you will never be wife number one. And the child you bear will be considered Sarai's. So you need to quit acting with hatred and trying to shame Sarai. You're not going to displace her. But did you notice something in our text? It happens both with Sarai and Abram. Neither one of them ever mentioned Hagar by name. They just label her. Your servant. Do with your servant whatever you think you need to do. She was the mother of his child. And he just tells Sarai, do whatever you want. In other words, Abram could have acted like the patriarch he was. Instead, he surrenders his responsibility. He simply capitulates. Instead of trying to seek a resolution with the Lord's help. Instead of going to the Lord and saying, God, we messed up. And we need forgiveness and we need your hand to move. He simply says, I'm washing my hands of this. Do whatever you want. The reality of all this 
points to is a compromise with the world usually results in more compromise. Once we begin utilizing the ways of the world to help God along, it's not long before we start looking more and more like the world rather than God's children. We started adopting the language of the world. We start adopting the methods of the world. We start adopting everything we should but God's plan. And i, I got to ask you, should we be surprised? And again, please hear me. Know my heart. Should we be surprised that much of our culture today looks at the body of Christ and says, I want nothing to do with you? Because our own actions have caused our witness to be harmed in the eyes of the world. Sometimes while we are preaching love, we are acting hate. Sometimes when we should be showing compassion, we are looking the other way. Sometimes when we should be doing what Micah says, love and seek justice, follow your Lord, walk humbly before God, we're anything but humble. Peter wrote that there was a blessing that comes when we, as God's children, as followers of Christ, are attacked for the right reasons. 1 Peter 4, 14-16 says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay, so if you are living for Christ and honoring Christ and serving Christ with the heart you should, the world is going to push back. But you will be blessed by God because you have honored God. And then he warned... If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Even as... Okay, folks. If you suffer because you're a jerk, if you suffer because you're full of hate, if you suffer because you're divisive, and there is no love of God in you, that's not a reason to think God is blessing you. If we live the life we are called to live, we can't expect pushback. The world does not like our message. And we must remain true to it. We must not back down from the the understanding that God's Word gives us about how salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And I will unapologetically assert that. But if pushback comes because we say one thing and live another, there's no blessing to be found. We must understand that a life of waiting upon the Lord is the path to actions that bring glory rather than shame to our God. Folks, we've got to get this. While on this earth, the only time Jesus ever got harsh with anyone was when he got harsh with religious leaders 
who by whose lives and way they conducted themselves kept people from coming to God. And just to know you how harsh this is, even liberal scholars who will say, well, you can't trust all the Bible, they'll point to this passage of Scripture and say, that is definitely not Scripture because Jesus would never have said anything like that. They've missed the point. Matthew 23 is where Jesus calls the Pharisees and scribes. You're like whited tombs. You look so beautiful on the outside and inside. You're full of dead men's bones. But in verses 2 and 3, he said, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. A biblical concept. You need to do what you say you are. And then verses 13 and 14, woe, he directly addresses these people. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. The reason it's harsh, they represent all who say, I trust in the Lord because I'm a great guy and I've earned my way. And if you want to have God's blessings, you must do just like me. We need to remember that we can do more harm to the kingdom of God by saying I trust in the Lord and then take matters into our own hands than we could ever imagine. But when we seek to truly follow the path of God, we open up His Word, we seek out what does it tell me I should be in this life? What should I be doing in this life? What has God revealed? Then our lives can become what they are meant to be. Lives that honor God. Lives that do not bring shame to the name of our Lord. G. Campbell Morgan, great man of God over a century ago, once said, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command, Second, readiness for any new command that may come. Third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. That's not a bad idea for the way of life. Waiting on Lord is, Lord, let me be what you want me to be. Let me do what you told me to do. And let me have the wisdom to wait until you say go. Warren Wiersbe warned the ability to calm your soul and wait before God is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. Yes, it is. He said, our old nature is restless. The world around us is frantically in a hurry, but a restless heart usually leads to a reckless life. And in today's passage, we have seen that lived out in Abram and Sarai. 
the man called by God, promised a land and promised an heir, enters into a reckless situation because he did not check with God. They decided not to wait on the Lord. So today, let us commit ourselves to learning, to trust that God can do what He promised to do. Let's commit ourselves to understanding our lives can honor God. Bring honor to His name rather than shame when we learn to say yes to Him. To actually seek from the Word of God what our purpose is, what our life should be, right here and right now. Let's commit our lives into the hands of God, trusting that His purpose for our lives will be fulfilled in His timing. We just need to be paying attention. We need to be listening, watching, waiting, and as we wait, be committed to doing what we already know to do.